Well, it is Pentecost Sunday, very important celebration in the life of the church. It's also an observance um, that can make some people just a little bit nervous. While it does commemorate the, uh, the beginning of the Christian church, it also suggests that God might sometimes do things that kind of challenge human sensibilities. So people might be comfortable with the idea of God. They might have a, a high appreciation for the person of Jesus, but this whole story about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and all the drama that came with it might cause some people to think that that tribe that derives its name and identity from that event, you know who I'm talking about, our dear brothers and sisters who call themselves the Pentecostals, that those folks might actually be onto something. Well, you know, we, we Christians, while we celebrate Pentecost, we didn't invent it. Pentecost, uh, as Beth pointed out, comes from a, a Greek word meaning 50, and for ancient Jews, it meant 50 days after Passover. And this feast would, would draw faithful Jews from all over the place, from North Africa, the Mediterranean, what's now present-day Turkey. And um, for a variety of reasons, these folks had been scattered among all kinds of nations, and as a result of that scattering, they had taken on the, the languages and the cultural characteristics of those places. And so a lot of people showed up for the celebration of Pentecost, and it would have probably been like this great big family reunion with aunts and uncles and cousins coming together, seeing friends and relatives they hadn't seen for a very long time. It was probably, it was like family camp in the ancient Near East. Uh, probably a joyous and exciting time for them. That is, until Peter and his friends showed up and wrecked the entire party. Now, now for, those, for those first followers of Jesus, really the party was just starting for them at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But the phenomenon of them being able to declare the wonders of God in the various languages of these gathered pilgrims disturbed all the familiar rhythms of that feast time. And it even caused some unrest as, as Peter, if you read ahead in the story just a little bit, makes all of them culpable, responsible in what he calls the unjust death of Jesus. Even if they weren't there when it happened, he just calls them all to account. So it was kind of a guilt by a association, he claimed, whether they were present, whether they weren't present. Nevertheless, in spite of that, we're, we're, we hear that a lot of the folks were cut to the heart. And they responded to Peter when he said, be baptized, turn your life, be filled with the Spirit. And at least 3,000 of them made that step that day. And the church was then unleashed upon the world. It's interesting that in this story, we see Peter pointing both to the past and the future. He points to the past by invoking the words of the ancient prophet Joel. But he also points to the future, declaring that this strange event is just a foretaste of what God intends for the future. But for the people in that place and time, including all of the disciples, it was really the present that mattered the most. And to put a finer point on it, it was presence that mattered the most. You know, I, I recognize that we, we Christians 
can get a little sketchy when it comes to this business of the Holy Spirit. We have the Apostles' Creed. We read that with some regularity. Uh, Holy Spirit gets one line out of the whole creed. It's a good line. We believe in the Holy Spirit, affirmation. Uh, but our scriptures speak of the Spirit clearly, and theologians throughout all of the ages have, have tried to come to grips with and wrestled with the idea of this mysterious threeness and oneness that we call God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they try to give us a framework for, for understanding statements like the one I'm going to read to you from the Apostle Paul, which also comes from Romans 8 that we read this morning. And it's kind of a complex statement that he makes, but listen to these words. You are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. Now that's a whole bunch of spirit language in one very short paragraph, and it's a bit complicated, isn't it? Well, you know, faithful Jews would have understood that to speak of the Spirit of God was to speak of his presence, of, of his, his actions, of his engagement with his people and his engagement with the entire world. But the earliest Christians, both, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, were increasingly coming to speak of the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God as the same Spirit. But rather than speak of the Spirit as something that came and went as circumstances required, they were speaking of the Spirit as someone who lived within those who had trusted their lives to Jesus, giving evidence that they belong to him. So we're invited to grasp this amazing truth that the very essence of God the Father made known in the real human life of Jesus the Son is now present and active in our lives and in the world through the Spirit. And it's by that Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, that we belong to Jesus. You know, all religious groups have what we might call a belief system, a kind of systematic way of talking about, thinking about, writing about the things that they, as a body, have come to believe, and it comes out in various dogmas, doctrinal statements, statements of faith, creeds, and so on, and, and we Christians have ours. We have our kind of belief system that we navigate, and within that belief system, we, we affirm the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, but we, first of all, aren't entirely sure all the time what that means, and we're not always sure what it is that this Spirit is even supposed to do. We can look at our scriptures, and we see that the Spirit illuminates, convicts of sin, comforts, advocates, guides and directs, even empowers and we interpret the work of the Spirit in a variety of ways. And in general, we agree that this Spirit, this he, she, or it of the Trinity, is in some way important to us. You know, oftentimes God, the idea of God, can be a sort of theological or metaphysical abstraction for us. We believe he's there, 
But in another sense, we understand that he's incomprehensible to us. After all, God is eternal, God is immortal, God is omnipresent, omniscient, all these things that we are not. We get that. We cannot take God, stuff him into a box and grasp him fully. I think we're okay with that. We can also reduce Jesus to a kind of historical icon, someone we seek to emulate, to copy by looking at these Gospels in order to understand how to live our lives after his example. I mean, Jesus himself told his followers that he was going away, that they would not see him again. And that's exactly what happens when someone is with us and then they are gone forever. We don't see them anymore. They just disappear into the pages of history. So we can read about that person, we can reflect on the memory of that person, but being with the person is not an option once they're out of the picture. Well, perhaps sometimes people think of Jesus in that way. But the words that Jesus speaks in the gospel reading that we heard this morning from John, do not leave us with an ever-diminishing historical reflection or with some kind of theological abstraction. Jesus declares that this spirit, this advocate, this comforter, this spirit of truth will not only be present to the disciples, but will also be doing the things that are like the things Jesus had been doing. Well, Jesus himself once said that he only did what he saw his father doing. And he now says that this spirit will only speak what the spirit hears. And what the spirit hears will come from God the Father. In other words, Jesus and his ministry didn't terminate 2,000 years ago. It is alive and it's energized and enacted through the very spirit of God, this spirit of Christ, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. And it's the spirit that same spirit who lives within us. The whole ministry of Jesus is expressed and demonstrated in the life of every person who belongs to him, evidenced by the indwelling presence and power of his spirit. However, the idea of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, dwelling within us and speaking to us brings up some questions, right? Like, What if we get it wrong? What if what I'm hearing is just another voice in my head, along with all my other little friends? And maybe I'm just talking to myself here, you know? What if I've moved into some kind of weird subjective mysticism, reinventing Jesus with each new voice that I hear? I think those are legitimate questions. I mean, people in the biblical narrative didn't always get it right. There's a story in the book of Acts about a magician who began to have kind of an admiration of Jesus and then figured he could buy the power of the Holy Spirit for his own use. Well, he got it wrong. We even look at, at Peter as we did a couple of weeks ago. He's got this vision of the unclean animals dropping out of the sky and he resists that even when he hears this voice, this voice of God saying, rise up, kill and eat. And he goes, no way. He stands back and says no to the Spirit. He doesn't know where this thing is coming from, and he's confused by it. It's a violation of what he's always thought. And there are no shortage of contemporary stories about people claiming that the Spirit has led them to do things that are at best odd and at worst horrific. 
When my wife Emily and I were first married, we became friends with a young couple that we met through Emily's work. We were both, you know, newly married couples and just trying to share a little life together, and we got together a few times. And they were Christians. Uh, we had a lot of fun with them, enjoyed their, our relationship. And, but the jobs changed, and we didn't see each other for about a year. Like you do, you sort of lose track. And uh, about a year later, we were, in, uh, had, were walking into this mall close to where we lived. We are in the parking lot, and this guy comes up to us, calls us by name. We did not know who this guy was. The uh, reason we didn't know is the last time we were with him a year ago, he was kind of robust and jolly, and the man that stood before us identifying himself as the same person was emaciated, his hair like straw. Uh, even after he identified himself, it took me a while to make the, the connection. And he realized our hesitance to engage with him, and he says, well, I, I, I guess you didn't hear what happened. And he said, during that year that we didn't see him, um, his wife's mother a self-proclaimed prophet who had a small tribe of followers around here residing up in the hills above the area where we lived, claimed to have had a revelation from the very Spirit of God. And in that revelation, she was told that her daughter had married the wrong man. And even though the daughter did not want to leave her husband, she wept at their parting. She submitted to her mother's demands, translating them as the call of the Spirit, uh, now to not only divorce her husband but to marry a young man that conveniently was part of the little group that gathered around this self-proclaimed prophet. And uh, she did divorce him. And the depression that came upon him afterward almost killed him, literally. He took to his bed. He didn't eat. He was just ready to die. I think they got it wrong. But at the same time, there was another group, a group from a local church that he had connected with prior to this happening, and they too claimed that the Spirit of God had spoken to them. And their response to those words was to go to his home, to get him out of his bed, to feed him, to help him get cleaned up and get medical care, to embrace him and love him and pray for him and bring him back into the community of the living from the place of death where he was residing, and to draw him back into the place where his life could find healing. The last time my wife and I saw him, we visited that church, and there he was up front with the choir singing, singing the praises of God. You know what I think? I think they got it right. A college professor of mine once said, when you think of God, see Jesus. In other words, if you want to know something about the character of God, what, what God is like, what God thinks about you and thinks about the rest of the world, look at Jesus. Dive deeply into his story. Let, let Jesus form your imagination, and then you'll understand something about the character of God. And I think we can also say, when you think of the Holy Spirit, see Jesus. We have the gift of our scriptures that bear witness to Jesus, According to Jesus himself, we have been given the gift of the Spirit who guides us into all truth. In the same way that we come to know the character of God through the person of Jesus, it is because of Jesus that we come to know the character of the Spirit. And at the same time, it is through the Spirit that we continue to know the character of Jesus. Presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives 
is the living, ongoing presence of Christ. It was the gospel writer Matthew who linked the birth of Jesus with the Hebrew name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And it was the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews that reminded us that God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And it was Jesus who himself who said, I am with you always to the end of the age. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is the very presence of the living God. And just as we know the character of God through the person of Jesus, so do we know the character of the Spirit through the person of Jesus. And while it may seem to us that the Spirit moves like the wind blows, this Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ is neither capricious nor reckless. It's the Spirit that reveals to us the love of God for us and for the world. And it is this Spirit that invites us to join our lives with God's mission in the world. You know, some of us, from time to time, including me, have found ourselves just to be sort of admirers of Jesus. You know, we, we like him. We like the stories about him. We find his ethics helpful. We're intrigued by his intellect. And we might even find ourselves having graduated to becoming students of Jesus. Maybe we memorize some of his words and we engage earnestly with the scriptures that talk about him, even read a book or two that describes who Jesus was. And while those are good things, those are different things than being inhabited, indwelt, filled, possessed even by the living, present Spirit of Jesus. We often speak of Jesus as Lord, but as long as we keep him at a respectable arm's length, that lordship remains to us tentative. You know, I find it comforting in our scriptures to see that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit doesn't come because people satisfy certain qualifications or have the right associations, or work up the appropriate levels of spiritual activity. But the outpouring of the Spirit comes as a result of people's relationship to the center of all things. And that center is Jesus Christ. And as the old hymn says, we can turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And as we turn to him, turning away from everything else, we hold out our hands to receive his presence, the indwelling presence of his spirit, that we might truly belong to him. In just a little while, we're going to come to the Lord's table. Uh, we're going to share in our Eucharistic celebration. And there are many important symbols that come to bear at this time. And my encouragement to you is that when you come this morning, we, we approach that table with our hands outstretched to receive bread, later to receive wine, to receive body, to receive blood. And as you come, I want you to feel free within your own hearts to recognize as you're approaching this table, you're coming not out of qualification, but because you've been invited by Jesus, because it's his table. And as you come, just speak to him and say, I belong to you.
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. Amen.